0: Tom, this is the second time that we've had to do a disclaimer on a podcast because we had some
1: minor technical uh, difficulties. We'll call them
0: technical challenges. Some challenges in production. So this is October 31st when we released this and we recorded this several weeks ago, like September, several weeks ago and managed to forget that we had done it.
1: Totally intended to release this earlier in October.
0: You say this fairly regularly in here, but when we do multiple, when we record multiple episodes in a day, sometimes that last one, you may not be as focused or engaged in it as you are in the first one. Well, evidently that happened
1: with this one, and I just forgot that we did it. I was going to use the word fresh, but <laughs> I get it. Yeah, it's mentally challenging. Either way, forgive
0: us for being a little bit late. This one is about wheat and cover crops, so... It hadn't rained, hadn't rained a drop here that I know of since we recorded this, so it's not completely out of bounds yet on wheat planting date and things like that.
1: No, it's timely.
0: You'll hear the music and then you'll hear me and Tom and Eric talking about stuff that again, we recorded a few weeks ago and forgot about and are just getting out to you now. So we hope that you are able to get some good content out of it. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring
2: the Crop Doctors.
0: Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Eric is here with me and Tom. So Eric, thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon. Good to be here. We're going to talk about wheat and we're going to talk about cover crops. Cover crops have gotten a lot of attention around the state the last few years. So we, I guess we've talked about them, Eric, in the past, but it would have been a more after the fact, up in the winter or early spring when we were talking more about how they were doing rather than how to do them. And so we're going to sp- spend a little time talking about that. Eric, before we start, my question for you is, I've had a raging case of poison ivy. I'm into day eight on this case of poison ivy. So among the insidious things that you can get into around here, just off the top of my head, poison ivy, chiggers, mosquitoes. If you had to pick one, which one of those three would you take? Which one am I Yeah, if you had to if you had to be afflicted with one of those, which one would you say, well, hey,
2: all right, I'll do it. Uh, thankfully I am quite tolerant of poison ivy well that didn't work i need another um so you know my bugaboo would be jiggers i guess man i do hate jiggers
0: tom you want to
1: weigh in you're shaking your head take the mosquitoes because i can see them and swat them
0: i think mosquitoes is my choice too and i'm only
1: this poison ivy
0: thing is a new phenomenon for me i don't think i was sensitive to it while i was
1: growing up Uh, i'm not even going to speak on that
0: it's just been the last few years that i started reacting to it somebody told me the other day they thought it was a cumulative
1: uh, exposure thing you also get more allergic to things as you get older well that's possible Um, that's like the thing with ragweed you know hey i didn't have any allergies growing up and now all of a sudden i'm just a raging case of the sniffles when i get to the middle of september that's a ragweed issue
0: this is not a widespread poison ivy case, but in a concentrated area, it well, is. What
1: are you using to treat the affliction? Well. Because uh, calamine and gold bond is the Forester's mix of preference.
0: Our Our podcast is not sponsored by anyone. Therefore, no, but I just
1: gave you two options.
0: <laughs> it's uh, some stuff that my wife found that actually works pretty good, but it's, it's like abrasive. You and then it's medicated too. So I don't know what the name of it is off the top of my
1: head. Calamine and Gold Bond.
0: Yeah, but that stuff's just nasty.
1: Calamine or Gold Bond?
0: Both. The residue of it is nasty. I understand. Eric, it'll be October when we drop this episode. So what's your prognosis for wheat in the state for this year?
2: I think it's going to be up a little bit. We've had historic low levels of wheat the last five or six years now. Whenever we have good summer crops and they're successful, that that reduces the likelihood of of planting wheat. Late harvest is sometimes played into that. Sometimes the the type of weather that we have during the fall is either conducive or not so conducive for planting as well, as well as the economics is, is always a big player in terms of what is produced. But we've been steadily increasing interest the last two or three years, and there seems to be a little bit more there than normal. So
0: that's something that'll probably be among the people that are interested. It'll just be a switch that flips.
1: It's going to have to rain if we're going to do any of that. No doubt. Planting date for wheat, Eric. What's your best window?
2: Wheat is rare compared to the summer crops in that you want to try to plant it as late as possible in the fall. You do not want to plant it early. Planting early creates more problems and limits your yield potential more than probably any other management practice.
1: And what's early?
2: Early would be October the 15th. We certainly don't want to be planting early October. And and a way to characterize that is that some of the states in the north of us, particularly Kentucky, has a state yield contest for for wheat yields. And the winners in Kentucky are not planting before October the 15th. And it's considerably cooler. Winter comes earlier up there. So it's always better for us to try to plant as late in the fall as possible within reason. Obviously, wheat is a winter crop. It needs to come up and emerge and get a little bit of growth on it in the fall before winter sets in. But really, that's its only purpose is just to emerge and start the tillering process or the, the development of additional stems in vegetative production during the fall sometime. And uh, normally we've got warm enough conditions until well into really, you know, in the central delta until, you know, sometime in December normally before the wheat growth kind of comes grinding to a slowing halt anyway with the onset of winter. So in general, probably I would say from October the 25th through Thanksgiving would be optimal planting dates for wheat. Now that's going to be a little bit earlier in the North Delta compared to what it's going to be in the South Delta. And certainly as you get into South Mississippi, those those planting dates would want to back up even a little bit further. Wheat needs to have enough cold weather after it emerges in order to stimulate it to actually enter reproductive development. That's a rare situation or, or a weird physiological phenomenon that the wheat has to go through in order to actually enter reproductive production and, and sometimes it can be warm enough during the winter that if we plant late maturing varieties and plant them late say early December or something like that it can stress those plants to the point where they don't get enough cold weather to properly vernalize and head on time or head at all in the
1: springtime. Gosh, you should say, though, the only place I've seen that happen to be the Beaumont OVT, so not far outside of Hattiesburg, and then there was a little bit around Raymond or a little east yeah. of Vicksburg. So anything south of 20, if it stays warm during the winter, that's a possibility that you won't get vernalization if you plant it late. Yeah, And we have a really mild winter with not enough cool temperatures.
2: Yeah it's easy to see in those OVTs but we've seen it as far north as you know at Startville as well too so but and every once in a, in a while we'll have a, a warm winter like that you can never predict that or plan for it obviously but uh, wheat is something that, what that tells us is if we're seeing it in the OVTs it means that wheat varieties and variety selection plays a huge role in how those varieties react to those conditions and The adaptability for wheat varieties, particularly South I-20, is worlds different than it is in the North Delta. So we need to be very aware of that when it comes to variety selection.
0: Is that something that you account for during variety selection? Is the variety's response to environment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, When I do short list for wheat like we do for other crops, I break it down into different regions of the state. We've got a Delta region, we've got a North Mississippi region, And then we've got a South Mississippi region, and that South Mississippi region is going to be South I-20. And really, I'm looking at those wheat tests, like Tom said, at Beaumont, Raymond, um, other South Mississippi locations we have. And I look also at our, you know, other southern states, um, like Louisiana's variety testing program. They do a very good job down there and look and see how those varieties are performing over there as well.
0: South of I-20 would you have a sense of how many years we don't get that accumulation of cold days? Oh Maybe you ever look
2: at that. I've been around here long enough I guess that, that just those years are starting to add up pretty good. It's hard to believe that but um, like Tom said the, there's been a few cases where folks have planted after Thanksgiving down in you know Natchez area or somewhere in that region where they've run into problems and it's usually by looking at last year's OVT results. You can't look at last year's OVt results only and just look at the yields in this case and that's that's a rare situation you know we always focus on yields with our other crops, whether it's corn soybeans, sorghum wheat, whatever I guess and obviously yield is important, but we also have to look at that variety maturity and see how it relates to that vernalization because a lot of those varieties that yield well you know in North Mississippi, they may also yield well in that variety trial at Raymond or somewhere thereabouts, even at Beaumont the previous year, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you look at multiple years, and I look at, I keep an Excel spreadsheet where I'm looking at wheat yields, not just the last three years, but six or seven years in many cases, and, and, you know, cross-referencing our results with those other states further south, you know, particularly the South Louisiana test, where uh, we can really see a, a, dramatic change in what the the top yielding varieties are in those southern regions when you do have those extreme situations that may be a, you know, a one-in-25-year occurrence.
1: I was going to say, I, I remember there was one year in the last five that that was an issue at Beaumont, and you could walk the OVT and look at it and just point out the ones that didn't vernalize. And it was not a lot of them, but they were pretty easy to pick out looking at those plots. Yeah,
2: The same varieties are going to get planted in the in all the wheat variety trials in the state that's different some from some of the other crops so that's right. there's there's a huge difference in the variety maturity and how they may perform in different areas and that's that's the key thing from a variety selection standpoint for wheat
0: early season
2: suggestions watch outs or anything related to wheat eric i'm thinking of weed control when i look at you jason i guess got to start clean with wheat you know, whether that involves putting out a burn down or using tillage prior to planting. It's helpful for many of the especially the residual herbicides to plant wheat with a drill where you're covering it with some soil and, and getting better and more uniform initiation of those seedlings and development and safety from a herbicide that may be applied immediately following germination of the wheat um for ryegrass control or whatever it might be. Don't forget about fertility needs. A lot of times weed is planted, you know, it's kind of an afterthought. You know, we'll take care of fertility and weed control for that matter in the springtime. And I always tell folks, you know, number one, be extremely aware that a lot of your important weed issues can be addressed more efficiently in the fall than they can in spring. But we've got to take care of our fertility needs. And I'm not just talking about nitrogen here, but we need to make sure that that shallow-rooted crop that's grown during the wet time period of the year, it's not going to be able to mine nutrients that are deeper in the profile like some of our summer crops. It's extremely relying upon what the inherent soil fertility level is in the upper six inches of the soil profile because that's where most of its rooting development is going to occur and what it's going to be relying upon. So making sure that it has you know, the major and secondary and minor nutrients that it needs to produce high yields. And, and really, you know, a lot of folks underestimate the potential for wheat yields. I think that using good management, we can we can budget a 70 bushel an acre or better wheat yield in most cases and, and consistently grow that um, just by using, you know, just good old simple block and tackle management, I guess, where we take care of fertility, we take care of our, our main limitations and issues, whether it be weed control or or disease control, other things during the year, insect control, that are robbing us from, from bushels that that crop can be producing.
0: Eric, we wanted to touch on cover crops, and you've done as much with cover crops as anybody in Mississippi that I know. And like we mentioned, they've gained some popularity, some interest around the state for various different reasons, whether it be conservation programs, and then there's agronomic reasons, too. Weed suppression, particularly ryegrass and my world, and then some other things, too. Now is the time to start thinking about cover crops if you hadn't already. And and maybe by the time we drop this, you, maybe you should have already gotten it planted, uh, but there should still be time. So uh, I guess just kind of give us a overview of what you've done related to cover crops and then what folks need to be thinking about. In our state, if they're interested in a cover crop.
2: Being a production agronomist, I'm interested in cover crops and how we can incorporate them with our standard cropping programs and, and maintain the profitability or, or enhance the program somehow. So, uh, we've had a graduate student project that is looking at, at different aspects of that, mainly the use of uh, burn downs and timing necessary in order to. Uh, maintain and allow corn planting um, and seeing how the, the termination timing is affecting the productivity um, as well as different seeding methods. The other aspect that we've been researching is is evaluating different plant species for cover crop usage and the interesting thing there is that you know we've got several different groups of species that are typically used in cover crops. And and our end goal, I guess, is to develop some comprehensive publications that address how we address some of the benefits associated with the cover crops and what specific species or groups of species, what role they play in selection of appropriate species for the goals that you might have on your farm. So we've been evaluating up to 20 or more cover crop species the last several years. Um, We should have some publications that are already online by now that discuss things like the the specific um, species selection and and how to go through that process. And the way I do that is break that down into three different groups of species. You've got cereal grass species or cereal grain species. Um, This can include wheat, cereal rye, black oats, triticale, which is a cross between wheat and cereal rye. Those species are serve the role, basically, our best role as a soil stabilizer. So they produce a lot of biomass also, which is helpful, but it can cause issues with compatibility, either mechanically planting our summer crops into all the stemming material, Or what we've seen in the case in corn and and sometimes with other crops as well is that all that mat of material on the soil surface is physiologically retarding the soil temperature enough in the soil that it's retarding growth of those summer crops following following the cover crop program. So that's where termination timing becomes an important tool to basically kill that green vegetation earlier and allow it to start decomposing so it's less troublesome for our our key cash crops that are planted behind that. We found that the cereal grass species are probably the most troublesome group of species. um, Because they have a high carbon content, they have a very stemmy crop, particularly during the, you know, if you allow it to start stem elongation in the spring. And uh, they break down a lot slower than those legume species or the brassicas, which is the other two groups of uh, species. But by far, the cereal grasses or the cereal grains, they have a fibrous root system that spreads laterally through the soil. And if you're looking for soil stabilization, they by far provide the best protection of the soil surface, Um, either maintaining beds over the winter, preventing erosion, then any of those other species that have a tap root, So that's key in that respect as far as the the role of that group of species and how they um, serve a purpose as a cover crop. The legumes are important because they fix nitrogen. Obviously, you know, with nitrogen prices being high, um, that serves an important role, but the nitrogen is important not just by supplementing your nitrogen program, but when a cover crop starts to decompose after you kill it in the spring. It ties up available nitrogen during that decomposition process. So it can temporarily immobilize nitrogen in the soil, which otherwise could be used, utilized by those young seedlings that you're planting for your, your primary crop. So it can put them in a disadvantaged situation, if you just have a cereal grass species in the field. So mixing a legume out there is extremely important. And what we've seen when we planted the single components of a cover crop mix, particularly a cereal grass or a legume, when we plant them together, we have a certain amount of yield reduction associated with late termination timing of those. If we take those apart, we still see the same thing if we have cereal grass. But if we just have the legume, Then that yield loss is much less severe. So, most of our problems again are being originating from that cereal grass species in our cover crop blend. Nebraska species, they are kind of what I'd call a serve a complementary role or a specialty role. They, of course, can produce tubers, which hopefully, you know, the goal there is to relieve compaction create larger pore areas in the soil to increase water infiltration, just improve soil physical properties. If we're able and we have already, you know, using tillage to do that, those might not be necessary at all. Um, they are very leafy and they actually can have allelopathic or, or release some chemical compounds which impede the growth of the, of the other plants in close proximity. So sometimes, you know, the, the brassica species... Can't be planted at as at high of a population as those other ones, and they're more incompatible with other species than than the than the cereals and the legumes in general. So, you know, they they serve more of a complementary role. But that's kind of how I break down those three different groups of species.
1: What are most people tending to plant? Are they planting a cover crop mix, or are they planting them in single crop? Yeah.
2: Most are planting some blend. I see a lot more folks in general concentrating on the cereals. And the the biggest thing that I would say there is that what we just talked about, most of our benefit or most of our complications from the cover crop are coming from those cereals. So if anything, I would counteract that by adding a legume to the crop, Um, That reduces the problems with nitrogen immobilization. They decompose quicker in the springtime, and we see better crop yields behind the legumes than we do the cereal yields in general. The main issue is that you could, you know, I mentioned already about five different, four or five different cereal species. There's not a lot of difference between those in terms of, there are some differences in physical characteristics, a little bit in winter hardiness, but you could pick any any one of those and probably succeed. When you look at the legumes, you've got a lot wider range in adaptability. You've got some of them like crimson clover that is most, you'll hear more about that than any other species as far as adapt or, you know, use across the United States. But it is very intolerant of saturated soil, high water conditions. You know, when when we're growing them in Mississippi, you know, on flat delta soils, particularly heavy soils, mixed soils, um, that are going to stay wet all winter, that species is not going to survive very well at all compared to some of the alternative species that, that will tolerate wet conditions. You know, I've had it flat die in all the furrows in my plots. On top of the beds, it'll be okay. It'll be decent, but it won't thrive. Whereas there are three species, as far as the clover species, that will tolerate wet conditions extremely well, and that's bursine clover, persian clover, and balanza clover. So those are three species um, that are very well adapted and would probably succeed on a lot higher percentage of acres across the state than what crimson clover. And another one that's commonly used a lot is hairy vetch. Hairy vetch doesn't tolerate wet conditions real well. The other unique characteristic about it is it it is viney in nature. So if we're planting into it, particularly if we allow it to grow a little longer in the springtime where that vine gets any size to it, you can imagine what's going to happen if you run a a planter through there with a traditional trash whipper type apparatus to remove stalks from the row and efficiently plant into. It's going to get wrapped up in that vine and the planter operator is going to spend a lot of time probably digging that out of the planter and want nothing to do with that crop ever again in the future so um, that's one of the the caveats about that crop but obviously it's a popular legume cover crop as well.
1: When's the best time to plant cover crop? When and how?
2: Most of it is fairly rudimentary I mean a lot of folks will just broadcast it airplane will broadcast it a lot of times on on ground that's been prepared you know tilled rode up and and ready basically in the fall so whenever we get through it with fall harvest and get fields prepped as long as we don't wait till too late you can successfully plant this mix of cover crops wheat and and any of those cereal grains is probably the the seeding would be optimized if it was covered you know a half to you know up to an inch deep maybe even deeper than that in the soil and that would be what the textbook answer would be for planting depth but those legumes really need to be seeded much shallower than that. And every, every, you know, on tilled ground, what we've seen and what we use in our plots and what we've, we've seen in most cases in field situations, you can get a perfectly acceptable stand of, of any of these cover crop species, even the fairly large seeded ones like, like oats and some of the brassicas seeded on top of the ground on, on tilled ground and letting the natural rainfall bring it up, basically. You know, in a rare case like last year where we got super cold temperatures, broadcast seeding some of those species particularly the the cereal species on top of the ground may reduce their winter survivability just a bit if we lose a little bit of those you know it's not going to hurt our feelings too much Um, one thing we did learn from the freeze last year that again there was a great difference between those three groups of species and how they tolerated winter conditions the brassicas were 100% winter killed basically nothing left whatsoever be lucky if we found any of different varieties of different species you know your typical di- di- can- daikon or tillage radish you know all those were were completely annihilated by the freeze the legumes took it pretty hard as well to put it in perspective the worst of the cereal species which were the oats black oats or, or common oats either one you know had 30 to probably 40 percent winter kill and all of this, all the legume species had at least that much or more. Some of them, you know, I rated as you know 90 percent winter killed. And the best one was was only about 40 or 50 percent winter killed, and that was balanza clover. You know, all the rest of them took it on the chin pretty hard, I guess, from the, that freeze last year. But in other years, that hasn't been that much of an issue. Obviously, when you look at legumes, you also want to try to pick something on the early side. You know, all those species that I mentioned, Crimson Clover, hairy Vetch, Bursim clover, Balanza clover, and uh Persian clover are all relatively early, no no later than what we'd call medium maturity. Generally, you know I would like to plant the cover crops as, as quickly as the fields get prepped after harvest time. Early October, or try to get it planted as early in October as possible. Um, I know co- folks that have done cover crop research for years, you know, get better results from planting, you know, early September, mid-September. They get more growth on them during the fall, and obviously that would be nice, but that's not very practical from a moisture standpoint. We've gone since you know, mid or early July in many cases without having any appreciable rainfall. So trying to plant something when it's bone dry out there is not going to be beneficial as well. Just as well wait wait till things cool down and the likelihood of getting rain is is more substantial anyway. I guess I'll just put in a plug, I guess, for the cover crop publications and, and guidance and publications that we'll have coming out this fall look those up they'll be on the Mississippi Crop Situation blog we'll probably have publications that are that develop out of that and uh, hopefully just give us some feedback to to improve that I, I'm proud of what we've got so far and think it'll be extremely helpful for folks to make better selection choices for for getting the most out of those dollars that they spend on a cover crop.
1: Eric thanks. We really appreciate That's good information because I certainly think there are probably some more people that are doing that out there that I'm even aware of. And you're definitely a wealth of knowledge on those types of things. And as Jason said to me, you've done more of it than anybody else.
0: Eric, thanks so much, man, for spending some time with us. Thanks for the opportunity. Enjoy visiting with you, man. Be careful going back home. Thank you.